I invite you to John chapter 17. If you could do a quick uh, scan of your entire life and maybe think of a place or an experience, perhaps even a person that you would say, this is the most delightful moment of my life. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. This is the best experience I've ever known. I wonder if we went around the room and had time to ask everybody, whether you're a young child or been around for a while, I wonder the variety of, of the kinds of things we might hear just in this collection of people about the most exhilarating experience you've ever had. Now, I wonder if you can testify to the fact that we're made not to remember days and weeks and years, even though that's the structure in which we live, but we're made to remember moments, hard moments, happy moments. It's just the way we're wired. Some of us know the day and the, you know, the calendar of, of when the event that we just thought of took place, but it takes you back to a moment. Now I want to ask not only what's the most exhilarating experience you've ever had, but what if you could bottle the good experiences up? What if you could package them? You could open it whenever you wanted to. You could uncork it whenever you wanted to. You could have it all the time. The experience, the exhilaration, the joy Well, one more question. What if we could take not only our individual moments of exhilaration and joy, but what if we could take our collective experience of that? If we could amplify our individual experience by adding to it the experiences of our loved ones compounding upon one another, today's passage Jesus wants us to know something. He actually uses that word, I will it, I want it, I desire it. Jesus wants us to know that that cumulative effect of all the joys we've ever had, compounded together, mine on top of yours and yours on top of mine, just compounded together, would be like a feather's weight on a scale compared to what he soon will give to all of his people forever. The passage is John 17. It's the last three verses of this glorious prayer. Picking up in John 17, 24, I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. Hear the voice of Jesus engage with his Father as he prays. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them. 
and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Join me again in prayers. We ask for God's help. Oh, Father, just a few moments to soak our souls beneath the waterfall of one of the most exhilarating passages in the whole Bible. It's got to be one of the most high mountain peaks of all the things you've revealed to us about your heart, your son, his saving purposes, what's coming in this, this age that's just on the other side of this lifetime. For all who believe, oh Lord, I pray that you would come and capture us with the realities that lie just beyond the veil of this life. That you would help us even now to realize that eternity, your glory, your love, that right now those realities are more concrete than the chair in which we sit. They're more real, they're more here, they're more now, they're more yes, they're more amen, they're more sure, they're more solid than anything we've ever seen in this life. Give us Jesus. We ask in his name, amen. I want to try to do two things. If you've got your Bible open, I want you to see four things in these three verses. I had five, but I combined two because you guys are already so patient. I want to show you four things in this passage, just four realities. Here they are. You can put your finger on the phrase in the verse. See it for yourself. I want you to see that there are at least four incredible realities revealed to us in these final three verses. And then I want to go back and touch three phrases. That's the outline for today's message. See these four realities. Look at them for yourself. See that Jesus praised them. And then second... Focusing on glory, love, and the indwelling Christ. Uh, look at these four realities. I'll put them in question form. It'll just go sequentially, verse 24, 25, 26, right through the passage. Here's, here's question kind of 1 and 1a. One what does Jesus want and why does he want it? What does he will? What does he desire and why does he will it? Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am. That's what he wants. And here's the why. So that they may see my glory, the glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So he wants, the word is will, desire, he wants you with him forever. That's why he came on his rescue mission of love. He was already with the Father and the Spirit from forever, but he wants you with him forever. But he wants you there for a reason, and I wonder if this is the reason you want to be there. So that you can see everlasting glory beaming from the face of God the Son. Now, we'd be, we would have to be some kind of fools to suspect 
that when we cross over the threshold of death, we will all of a sudden be interested in the glory of Jesus forever if on this side of eternity for a little 10 or 20 or 80 year run, we were hardly interested at all. He wants us with Him. That's what He wants. And He wants us with Him so that we can see His glory and know that His glory is the aftermath of the love that the Father has given Him from forever. The glory of the Father's love invading the life of the Son from eternity, beaming out to us in radiant glory forever. That's why He wants us there. So there's number one. I hope you can see that. John's already made us known, uh, made known to us throughout this gospel that Jesus' will, what He wants, Father, I desire, verse 24, is exact, exactly the same as the Father's will. He only wants what the Father wants. In John 5.30, he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. He wants what God wants. So you could say, verse 24, the question, what does Jesus want? You could say it this way. What does the triune God want? What does he want? He wants you. And he wants you to see who he is. Second, the second reality I just want you to put your finger on and look at there for a minute is who does Jesus know? And consequently, who, who do his people know? Verse 25, the only time Jesus addresses the Father this way, O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. Well, there's the answer to that first part of the question. Our second reality, Jesus knows the Father. I have known you, and His people know that He sent from the Father. Verse 26 expands even more that the Lord Jesus has made your name, the Father's name known to, to His followers, and He will continue to do so. So who does Jesus know? Jesus knows the Father. He knows Him perfectly. He knows him truly. He knows him according to the reality of his character. He, he doesn't make up a God of his, you know, imagination if, if such a thing were possible. He, he, he doesn't do that, although we are all guilty of having done that. He knows the one true God. Verse 3, he knows him in all of his righteousness, in the splendor of his perfections. He knows everything about everything that is true of God. And in verse 26, he makes this God known, his name, that's his character, that's the totality of his perfections. Jesus makes God known to men. So first is, what does Jesus want and why does he want it? He wants you, and he wants you to see his glory and the depths of the Father's love for him. Second, he knows God perfectly and imparts the true God and the knowledge of Him to all of His people. But the third reality, I want you to put your eyes on it, is why does Jesus reveal divine realities, the character of God, the nature of God to His people? Why does He do that? Verse 26, I have made your name known to them and I will make it known. Here's His purpose, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them. 
And this is one of the realities we're going to come back to in our meditation after I show you the fourth, the fourth thing I want you to see. But I've just got to say now that this is ground. This is bottom. This is rock. <laughs> the love that you love me with, that's the bottom. That's the ground. That's the rock. The love you love me with, give it to them. This is why heaven is forever. Because it's going to take forever for you to perfectly, without inhibition, no impediment of sin, search out and receive the depths of God's love for you. You're never getting to the edges. You're never getting to the bottom, ever increasing, never exhausting God's infinite love for you in Christ. Indeed, the same love with which He loves His eternal Son. It's right there in verse 26. The fourth reality I want you to see is the ultimate gift. What is the ultimate gift that Jesus imparts to His people? You see, it's not a thing outside of Himself. It's not love out there. It's not glory over there for you to see, for you to receive. It's Jesus in, in here. Look at verse 26. The last three words of the verse in the New American Standard rendering is a really great translation because that's the way the accent falls. I in them. In the greatest prayer ever prayed, Jesus ends with the greatest gift ever given. Myself. This is what I want. This is what I want, Father. Oh, righteous Father. Earlier, he had referred to him as Holy Father. Oh, one true God. I want this, and I want this more than I want anything else. And I, I put it here as an exclamation mark on the end of my prayer. I want me in them. Jesus gives himself fully, freely, forever. This is what makes heaven heaven. To have Christ is to have all the blessing of God indeed. In Him, all the blessings in the heavenly places reside. To be with Him where He is is the greatest possible gift God could give us, but to be with Him without Christ would be no heaven at all. He gives us Himself. So for the remainder of our time, I want you to zero in with me now. Beneath these four grand realities, on seeing the glory of Christ, being loved by the Father with the same love with which He loves His Son, the Lord Jesus, and Christ in, in us, where this prayer ends. So, first, the, the glory of Christ that you and I will one day soon see. And I mean you and I, if you are those for whom Jesus is praying. This isn't universalism. Everybody's not going to see this glory this way. But verse 20 people will see, I believe it's verse 20, those who believe in me through their word. This is believers in the Lord Jesus. This is those who have in time been made sensible by the Holy Spirit's conviction of the manifold evil of their sin against God. You've seen yourself 
beneath the light of God's holiness, and you know something of the depths of your depravity, and you have been arrested by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to know that you have committed mutiny against God. You have tried to dethrone God and deify yourself. You know your sin. And it is for that reason you've been exposed, you've been found out, you've been caught, you're bloody-handed, you're red-handed in front of God, you have nowhere else to turn, you can't make any excuses, there's no more blame shifting, you're caught, you're guilty, you're under arrest, and you know, as our catechism said so soberly, you are not only hell-deserving, but you believe yourself to be the most hell-deserving sinner who's ever touched the planet. If you wonder anything under real conviction, your principal wonder, your curiosity goes as far as your mind can possibly go, and your peak curiosity becomes something like this. I know He's great. I know He's glorious. I know He's bigger than I've ever imagined. I know He's God. But could He possibly have enough mercy for a sinner like me? And in verse 20, Jesus is praying for a select subset of humanity. Those who believe in me. That's the people who are going to see what Jesus is talking about in verse 24. My glory. Father, I desire that those whom you've given me, look at this, be with me so that they can see my glory and Know this everlasting love that I've enjoyed from eternity. But just, just focus for a second. Who's, who's going to be there? It's believers. Where are they going to be? They're going to be with me. Isn't this wonderful? Jesus is not content to have you belong to Him and not have you with Him. His principal aim in saving you is to spend eternity with you. It reminds me of an experience I had not too many years ago when I turned down an opportunity to go somewhere with, with some good friends, a group of guys, and I, I said, thanks for the invite, but I'm, I'm planning to just hang out with Tracy that night. And they were, you know, curious and using a little bit of friendly guy banter about it all. And asked me, you know, in other words, why? why? Why would I pass up such an opportunity to do, to do that? And I said, well, I married her because I want to spend time with her. And I don't just love her, I like her. I want to be with her. To a far greater degree. And in a way, you're not going to fully know yet until you're with him. This is the way Jesus feels about you. He saved you. He did it all by himself, but he also did it all for himself. You're never going to reach the depths of how glorious this is that he wants 
to be with you. He not only loves you, and He does, He likes you. He has no buyer's remorse. He's not sorry that He saved you. He will never go back on His promises of love to you. He came and hunted you down in His mercy because He wants you to be with Him forever. He's not sick of you. He's not moderately displeased with you all the time because you can't get your Christian act together. He sings over you, Zephaniah 3, shouting with His love in triumphant victory because He knows the end from the beginning. He's going to have you with Him forever, perfectly glorified, and He wouldn't have it any other way. I'm going to come back to that thought in just a minute. But I want to just tiptoe in That's about as deep as we'll ever be able to get on this side of eternity into why He wants you with Him. He wants you to see His glory. This is verse 24. He wants you to know God's love. Why does Jesus want you with Him? Answer, see His glory and the love that the Father has for Him from eternity. Now this is deep and you've got to think about it Jesus' way if you're going to think about it rightly. He wants you with Him, verse 24, to see His glory. Now, I asked you at the beginning, what's the most exhilarating, satisfying, happy moment you've ever had in your life? I'm telling you, on the authority of God's Word, when I nestle up beside you 10 trillion years from now, and I ask you that same question, you're not going to think about anything that you thought about if it's already happened to you. You're going to be to the max, forever increasing, overflowingly, overwhelmed with the reality of the glory of Jesus, and that will be the most exhilarating possible experience you'll ever have. And here's the deal. It never diminishes. It only increases forever. Nothing's more exhilarating and satisfying than seeing the glory of Christ. You were made You were made, you were designed to be a glory-receiving house. God wove you and designed you so that you would find your uppermost pleasure in receiving and seeing the glory of His Son. Nothing else will ever satisfy you. That's why hell is hell. Because the one thing you'll never be able to have there is the saving glory of Christ. We're going to come back to that too in just a little bit. Let's just go deep, deep as we can, just for a minute, into into glory, tiptoe with me. You're going to see God if you're a believer in Christ in the age to come but you're not going to see the Father, and you're not going to see the Spirit. I believe the Scripture's clear that the Father is invisible. He is not the Holy Spirit, but Jesus said He is Spirit. He has no body. I'm moderately acquainted with the anthropomorphisms in the Bible. It talks about His hand, His back, His foot, His face, His eyes. I understand that. Those are accommodating language to finite creatures so that we can have conceptual understandings of God. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have a back, an arm, a hand, a foot. 
The New Testament, I believe, is unequivocally clear. No man has seen Him at any time. He dwells in unapproachable light. No man has seen Him or can see Him. He's invisible. You're going to see God in eternity future, but you're not going to see the Father. The Spirit is, by definition, Spirit. He also has no body, and I believe you will not see Him, even in your glorified state. But now let me contradict myself. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. You will see the fullness of the one true triune God, 2 Corinthians 4.4, in the face of Jesus. This will never sound like good news to you as long as you and I consider being with Jesus loss. The New Testament only speaks of eternity as gain. There's no note of loss. To live as Christ, to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far much better. I desire to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Keep in step with the Spirit. Keep Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But if you think heaven's one long church service and you're already thoroughly bored right now, how could you possibly look forward to the glory of Christ seen as some ever-exhilarating experience that only increases and you're full to the max? You can't. We're so full of the chaff of this world and we look so much at temporal things that we have almost no stomach for eternal things. No appetite. No craving. Reminds me of the Rutherford illustration that I've worn you guys out with sufficiently, but I'm going to do it again when he preached in the Scottish Highland, Highlands for his faithful ministry those many years ago. And he said, this is how I feel on the Lord's day. This is Rutherford, not Jordan. He said, I feel like I walk a thousand miles to the ocean. I dip my hands down into the ocean and try to bring it back to the pulpit. But while I'm standing there, all I can see is beauty. All I can see is glory, you know, the rocky crags on the Scottish coasts and the beautiful sunrises and sunsets and the cool breeze and the birds flying and the waves crashing and everything is perfect. And you dip your hands down and you walk a thousand miles back to your little Scottish parish pulpit and the whole while, everything's then dripped out between your fingers, and you stand up on the Lord's day, and you say, can't you see all this beauty? That's what he feels like when he goes to look at the glory of Christ, Rutherford would say, and then he comes back, and, and the people look at him like, what are you talking about? And Rutherford said, I get it. I finally get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Unless you go to the ocean for yourself, you'll never be impressed. This is what the old guys talked about when they mentioned the beatific vision. When they see Jesus in all of his regal majesty and glory, ascended to his rightful place of honor, seated on heaven's throne, but you see him once you've gotten to the celestial city, to use Pilgrim's Progress language, and you yourself are glorified. 
seeing the glory of the exalted Redeemer in the presence of the Father is what D.A. Carson said this passage means is the ultimate goal of our salvation. That's glory. That's a little bit on glory. Love. I have two more. Glory, then I have love, and then I have Jesus in you. Love. Love. Do you see this line in verse 24? It's at the end of the verse. So that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, I tried last week to do my best from verse 23 to say to you, I'll say it another way this week, but this is what I was trying to say last week, entire unbelieving nations, pick your nation. We prayed for one today in the Philippines. Entire unbelieving nations, verse 23, I believe is teaching something like this, are going to put their hand over their mouth and say, can you believe how much God loves his people? They're going to be stupefied. Jesus said, so that the world may know your love for them, same love he has for the Son. That's not what he's talking about in this verse. So he's already said, verse 23, he wants the world to know how much the Father loves you. He's saying in verse 24, he knows how much he has been loved by the Father from the foundation of the world. He's never doubted the Father's love. He's known it from eternity, verse 24. But get this. He wants the world to know. He definitely knows. He wants you to know that the Father's love for you is the same love he has for his eternal Son. So what do you, where do you have to start to be able to figure this out? This is going to mean nothing to people who don't understand the gospel. Of course you think we've lost our mind. Okay, so you believe in some like sci-fi situation where God stepped out of, time, out of timelessness into time and died on a cross and now he's back in his timelessness? Yes. I believe if that's not true, I go to hell forever. Yes. Yes, I, I believe in a vicarious alien righteousness. I'm not talking about spaceship aliens. I'm talking about an outside of me righteousness. I can't get it by anything I ever do. I believe Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came into this world and lived the life I was supposed to, died the death I was supposed to, and God vindicated that his sacrifice was acceptable even to save a sinner as wicked as me by raising Jesus from the dead and exalting him into heaven. I believe that. This is what I'm trying to say to everybody who believes that gospel truth. You've got to know something of the Father's love for the Son for you to know the Father's love for you. But that's exactly what Jesus is praying for. He wants you to know the love He has for you. But you can't know it if you don't know the love He has for His Son. He wants you to know His Father's love for Him. And He's going to make you know that for eternity. Do you see this? This is, this is verse 24. 
so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. And then you just go to verse 26. I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus wants you to know something. I'm trying to say again, every person who's ever been born that never believes in Jesus is going to get stupefied by how much he loves you. Verse 23 is coming. Every single lost person will be dumbfounded at how much God loves people who believe in Jesus. Verse 23. Verse 24 and 26. You're not going to be stupefied. Well, maybe. You're not going to be dumbfounded. Maybe. Maybe that too. You're going to be exhilarated. You're going to be satisfied. You're going to be filled up. You're going to be completed. You're going to know something down deep in your bones that you can't unknow, that you can't unbelieve. You're going to know that the same love that the Father has for Jesus from forever is the standard of the love that He has for you also. I think heaven's like a thimble at the beginning, a little sower's thimble. I mean, it's got to be infinitely bigger than that, but this is the best way my mind knows how to picture it. And you turn your thimble upside down, and you're full to the max with God's love for you in Christ. There's no, you know, somebody has a greater, you know, filling. We don't have greater filling. We may have greater capacities upon entrance. That's my understanding of rewards in heaven, that this life dictates the size of your thimble when you enter into glory. And every true believer wants gold, rubies, and precious stones to lay at the feet of Jesus. You want a life of righteousness. And if you don't want that, you're, you're no Christian at all. But the size of our thimble, if you will, is determined somehow by our life here and now. But once we get to glory, everybody's thimble is, is, is completely filled to the top with the awareness of God's love for you in Christ. But everybody's thimble ever increases. And so after couple million eternities, you may have a 55-gallon drum, but it's still full to the max, and then you may have something else, and then you may have, you know, a couple billions, trillions of years, uh, if time can be a quantity for eternity, something like you see in South Memphis when you drive the loop and these massive containers at the oil refineries that are twice the size of the building that we're sitting in, but it's always full and it's always increasing. And in heaven, something's going to be true of you. When you know the love that the Father has for the Son, and you know, you know, without the ability to unknow, that that's the same love He has for you, you will in turn perfectly love Him back and all the people that he loves. The two great commandments never go away. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mentioned D.A. Carson earlier. His comments on this reality just helped me so much. The crucial point, Carson says, is that this text does not simply make these followers the objects of God's love, verse 23, but promises that they will be so transformed 
as God has continually made known to them, Jesus said, I will make your name known to them, that God's own love for His Son will become not just the love they receive, it will become their love back to Him and to others. This is what Carson says, the love with which they learn to love is nothing less than the love among the persons of the Godhead. So now I've got to ask you an application question after all that love. Which believer are you least looking forward to spending eternity with? Real Christian, names the name of Jesus, bought by the same blood that you claim to be bought by yourself, which of them are you least looking forward to spend eternity with? I want to say something to you as clearly and carefully as I can. Prove that you believe you will be there by extending God's love to them right now. Because I promise you that if you and they are both there, you definitely will extend that love to them forever. So I so say, what kind of fool will we have to think we, we what kind of fool would we have to be to think that we're headed to see the glory of Jesus forever, be exhilarated to the max forever, but now we're not interested in all, at all in, in, in seeing his glory? I would say the same question to you about this love. What kind of fools would we have to think? would we have to be to think that we're headed to a world of love? That's the way the Puritans described heaven. Heaven, a world of love. But right now, we would sort of prefer not to give the love of Jesus to other pilgrims who we anticipate will be there with us. That, I pray, would lead to the kind of unity that Jesus prays for all over this chapter. But I've got a last consideration, so a little bit on glory and a little bit on love. And as I segue to the final, Christ in you, those last three little words here, I in them. I have to ask you, what's the difference between His love for His Son eternally and His love for you forever in glory? There's a there's a big difference, and there's probably a lot that I'm not even thinking of, but I want to tell you what I believe is the fundamental one. He loves the Lord Jesus, the Father does, from eternity because Jesus is lovely. He is beautiful. He is the exact representation of the Father's nature. He is the perfect radiation of the Father's glory. He is, Colossians 1, the exact image of the invisible God. What God the Father sees in God the Son is the perfect reflection of the panorama of all of God's perfections. Okay, He doesn't love you because of that. So He loves Jesus, we could say, because He's beautiful, but He loves you to make you beautiful. He actually beautifies you with His love. And here's where we end. I said, Christ in you. He does it from the inside out. Look at this last little phrase. I want you to see that it's in here because it would be too good to be true if the Holy Spirit didn't write it. I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them. I would have expected a period. End of prayer. That's as good as it can possibly get. Thank you, Jesus. No period. 
that the love with which you love me may be in them. And, and, and one more thing, Father, one more, one more. Give them the same love that you've loved me with from forever. One final thing, Father. Give them me in them forever. There's no reason that any of us should be in glory with the triune God forever. There's no reason other than God is a God of love. But there's also no reason to expect that you will be there if this little phrase at the end of this prayer is not true of you. Why why do we have reason ground to hope for glory? Why do, we, why do we have good biblical reasons to hope that we will be in glory? To have a, not a hope so, but a solid biblical Christ purchase, gospel reality hope. Paul answers the question in places like Colossians 1, Christ in you is the hope of glory. If he's in the person next to you and not in you, they're going and you're not. If he's around you, but not in you, You're not making it to glory. What you need is something like an asbestos inside that would allow you to approach Shekinah glory, unfiltered, eternal, divine God. Get close to God without being incinerated. How can that happen for a finite creature? Answer, Jesus in you. In you. That's it. If you don't have Christ in you, you have no hope for glory. Not around you, not near you, not in people close to you. I'm talking about in you. And if Christ is in you, he's bigger than you are. He'll move in. He'll start rearranging the furniture. He'll change the locks on the doors. He takes over everything about everything, and over time, the evidence that he's in you is that this New Testament precious reality just begins to continue to pour out of you. My life, my life, my whole life is Christ, our scriptural call to worship. I didn't plan it. God's good at arranging stuff like this. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. So the New Testament writers would say things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. They would say things like, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live Christ, Christ, he lives in me. Paul would write to the Colossian church that he had never visited, something he really wanted them to know. Don't miss this, Colossians, because I know I hadn't been able to get there to see you face to face, but there's something you gotta know. You gotta know this, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you'll be revealed with him in glory. What does that imply? If he's not your life, you have no hope for glory. So, friends, Jesus wants something. He's not telling you and me, he's telling his Father. Here's what he wants. He wants you. Oh, Father, I want him to be with me where I am. So what I'm going to do 
is I'm going to make your name known to them. I'm going to give them the truth of your character. I'm going to make sure that they know the one true God, not a figment of their imagination, not their own self-concocted deity, not this plethora of world religions that just proves that man has a vacuum-sized hole in his heart and he's looking for a God out there. I'm going to make them know you. I'm going to make them know the real God. And I'm going to drench them unceasingly in the love with which you love me. Make sure that they know you and that they know they're loved and I'm going to take up residence in them. Just give me to them all my fullness in their life by faith. Everything. You know what that'll do to a person? It'll make you start looking to the eternal world. It'll, It'll help put in perspective that this world is not clear and heaven opaque and translucent it'll start to filter it different and this world will start looking translucent opaque we look not at the things which are seen but the things which are not seen that starts to look a lot more concrete like I prayed he's more real than the chair in which you sit he's closer to you than that And when Christ takes up residence, you start to see eternal things like that. It's like, okay, we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen, oh man, they're forever. They're trillions and trillions, if that's possible to quantify, of eternities of forever. And we start doing things by the grace of God, Christ dwelling in us, the power of the Spirit in accord with the Word, like fixing our hope completely on the grace that's going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what I'm trying to say to you? Everything I've been trying to say has been leading to this sentence. I believe that's what Jesus believes Christianity is. It's a Christ-saturated, Jesus-believing, Father's love poured into us, Knowledge of God that Christ alone makes available to us, and Jesus taking up residence in our life through faith. I believe Jesus believes that that's what Christianity is. My question to you would be Are you a verse 20 kind of person? Father, I'm praying not only for these 11, I'm praying for everybody who believes in me through their word. And these are the things he says, typify those people. Is that you? Well, you could believe upon him now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the concrete realities of heaven. I know, and I confess for me, and I know for many of us, it does seem opaque, it does seem translucent, it seems over there somewhere, it seems out there, it seems far away, it seems hard to just fix our minds completely on until, of course, the Holy Spirit arrests us with gospel realities, until your word takes deep root, until Christ himself within us by faith begins to take over and transform and sanctify and give us a heavenly hope and 
then we, we start to see that the things Jesus prayed for are the biggest, most attractive, alluring, exhilarating, magnetizing, possible focuses of our life. So I pray for every person here. Lord, I start with the members of this church, and I just pray that every single member of Grace Church, no exception, will be so captivated by Christ. I pray for all of our guests, visitors, people young and old. Oh, Lord, would you let the things Jesus prays for, would you cause the things Jesus prays for in John 17 to dominate their lives? And we thank you, Father, that you, you are going to see to it that we know that you love us with the same love with which you've loved your eternal son before the foundation of the world. Persuade us, Lord, and use this community of faith to keep our eyes on Christ. Cause our souls to arise and to bless our maker. In Jesus' name.